When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 183, where front end ends and back end begins. The fabled, the legendary, and the highly anticipated, critically acclaimed Rolling Stone raves about it, part two of our episode. The first part two we've ever done. That sounds weird to say, the first part two, but it's the first part two we've ever done. And if this sounds interesting to you, because it should... And you want to support the show, you can go check us out on the Patreon, leave a review rating on your podcast app, join us in our Discord server, share this with your friends. And this episode is going to be different than the first one, which is why it was divided into two parts. So the first episode, if you haven't listened to that, went into front end versus back end and what's full stack, what's front end, what's server side, what's client side, what's this, what's that, that type of stuff. And we had some debates and, and discussions on whether like, hey, we could validate forms in the front end, but what's that look like versus the back end and various other different functions that you could do in a website, front end versus back end, those type of things. That was the conversation. If you will, that was the lecture and this is the lab portion. So we're going to try to apply our knowledge now a little bit, hopefully. And it's uh, basically what this, ex- what this, episode comprises of is an example slash breakdown of a podcast landing page. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm just do a high level overview right now, and then we're going to go into it. So we're basically going to be going over this, uh, proposed or this, this, this not real page that comprises of a slider, a description section, a podcast section, and then a, uh, email signup form. It also has a very basic CMS to control one of the pieces of this. And what we're going to do is I'm going to go through the various parts and then Mike and I are going to discuss various things about it in relation to, hey, should this be done on back end? Should that be done on back end? How should this work? You know, what, what, what things do we need to consider? And a couple other little things too, like making things a little bit more efficient. Like, hey, is the back end more efficient here? Is the, is the front end this? Now I will preface this episode and preface this entire thing, this entire breakdown by saying that there are multiple ways to do everything. There's hundreds of different Salute or not a hundred different solutions, but there's hundreds of different, uh, what would you call it? Uh, hundreds of different, um, variations, variations, I guess you could say out there. So basically, if I say, Hey, the back end is going to be more performant in this case, that might be literally absolutely full stop incorrect, <laughs> like full, like st- incorrect full stop in your case. So we're talking kind of in, in, in general here. Again, we're applying our knowledge to this specific example in, in order to hopefully help you, uh, and especially beginners kind of get in and, and understand the difference between front end and back end. So we're applying our knowledge. And if you've no idea what I'm talking about, you don't know what front end and back end client versus server is, please check out our first part. It should have come out two weeks ago as of this episode's release. So go check that out. It'll, there'll be an episode. So it'll be part one, an episode in between, and then this episode right now. At least that's how it is scheduled for release right now. Okay, so let's let's jump right into it. So the first, the very first thing is going to be a classic one, a slider. So this slider is going to comprise of several images. These images are locally hosted. 
That means they are not on a CDN. They're not on someone else's server, on someone else's website. They're hosted right on our host, right on our thing locally. Their stat, it is static, meaning that in this case, it means that the this is not changeable by the CMS. Again, this CMS is very, very bare bones, and we'll get to that at the end. But this is a static thing, meaning that once we set it, we literally forget it because you can't change it from the CMS unless you get a developer or someone that knows how to use HTML and, and, and such to actually go in there and do it. And that's it. That's the breakdown for the slider. Really basic. So we have a few talking points here. The first one is going to be preloading and lazy loading images. So if you have something like this where it's locally where it's locally hosted, arguably you're already good in terms of the performance way. So let me give you an example. If you're trying to load a massive 4K image into this slider, which you shouldn't be loading a 4K image in the first place, but if you're trying to load a massive 4K image remotely, you not only have to render a massive 4K image and have that download to the client side, download to the person's computer, the website user's computer, you also have to have that uh, go over the network. So it's limited by the network speed between the servers as well. And so that there's another step in there. So arguably the best way, at least I would say, to host images if possible, and we'll talk about remotely hosting images in a bit, the best way to do it is to have it local. So that so you're already a step ahead in that way. But like I said, a 4K image is too big. So there's very important steps you need to take here to raise the performance of the site. Remember that when you have, say, an image tag in your HTML and you're loading that 4K image, the other, the the website user, so the client, the person that's using the website, they will have to download that image. If that image is 20 meg, 30 meg, 10 meg, 5 megs, they have to load that. They have to download that. And if they have an older computer, it might take a while because A, their network speed might not be that great, but maybe, the, maybe it's not even going to render all that well. And so you have to consider that as well. Older browsers, older this, older that. So you have to remember that even though an image is a very, say, simple form of media where it's not 60 frames a second, yada, yada, like you would have worrying about bit rates and stuff like that with video, it's it's arguably a simple form of, of, of media. It's still a piece of media. It's much heavier, even in its simple form, in its simplest form, than a piece of text in most cases. So we have to do things like compressing them properly, compress images using uh, whether it's either be your uh, your own photo editor, such as Photoshop or GIMP, or you can use, which is a free one, or you can use online ones where they compress it. And you need to compress this thing. Now, compressing is not the only thing you want to do. You also want to have proper sizing. So if the slider only ever goes to, say, a thousand by a thousand pixels, then the biggest image that you realistically should have on there is a thousand by a thousand because you could take a 4K image and compress, 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 but it's going to be all blurry and it's still, in terms of its size, it's still 4K. You can actually save a lot of the file size, the disk space of this thing, the thing that has to be downloaded by just resizing it. A 4K image being resized to 1080p saves a bunch already, even before it gets compressed. Now, maybe there's exceptions to that rule. I'm not a photography expert or a Photoshop expert by any means, but maybe that's the case, okay? So there's that. Then there's also uh, there's also the, um, I guess, the push and pull of how do we make the actual slider part? So, so before we jump into that, I kind of want to jump in with the compressing and proper sizing because I've, I've been doing this a little bit recently and uh, I've noticed a couple different things. So, one strategy that I have for the proper sizing 
is when you go down to mobile view, mobile view is actually the, the part where uh, loading becomes the most important and sp- page, sp- wow. page speed tests become the hardest, right? Because when you go down to mobile, the devices that you're on are usually not as quick with Wi-Fi. Like it, a lot of, you know, mo- mobile access to your site is going to be done on 4G, bad connections and stuff like that. So page speeds become even more important. A strategy that I've seen and I've used recently is you literally serve two different images, one for regular size and one for mobile. And just like Matt was saying, the proper sizing thing plays a huge impact here because an 1,000 by 1,000 image might work great for a you know desktop view or a widescreen view. But on mobile, you're going to be either cutting off that image or shrinking it down. But even when you shrink down an image, it still has to load the whole thing. So what I've seen done and what I've done recently, like I said, is you literally have a breakpoint for your images and you for uh, certain sizes, you don't load the large one and you load a cut off image in instead of a thousand by a thousand, maybe it's 400 by 400. And that again, cuts down the size. The other part is different file formats. So usually images come in PNGs or JPEGs. Oh, there's also a GIF. There's another new file format and there's even more behind it, but I won't talk about the, like the latest, latest ones. I'll talk about the one that's most accepted that's new, WebP. So WebP can be used for both images, videos, or GIFs. And it's honestly a significant compression. I'm talking like recently I've been using it more for GIFs because that's what I've been working with on with some of the projects. But we're talking like a GIF usually is considered to be really small for a video, like video to GIF size comparison. WebP takes it like to one-tenth of the size. Like it's crazy how well it compresses. And it does a very similar thing for images. We used to, and depending on what kind of project you're working on, we used to have to have a fallback with a PNG or a JPEG. But lately, all modern browsers, uh, Edge, Safari, Opera, Firefox, Chrome, all modern browsers have started supporting WebP. And it's been like that for a little while now. So unless you're building for older browsers like IE, you can actually get away with only using WebP, in my honest opinion. Again, depending on your on your uh, um, on your audience, you make sure you you kind of fall down that road. If you have one percent of your audience or zero point one percent of your audience that uses those browsers, maybe you don't care about it and you just serve the WebP, so you don't have the overhead of storing those larger images. But anyway, what this is all to say that there is there are many ways of compressing of getting of getting images down of getting that you know ninety nine page speed even with a lot of images. It does take some work because again, you have to, maybe you have to serve two different images, one small one, one big one. Maybe you have to convert all your images to WebP. Maybe you have to compress all your images, like Matt was saying. Uh, but that's all part, again, of the front end experience, right? When you're a front end developer, this is what you're going to be talking about a lot of the time is trying to get your website to be as efficient as possible, look as good as possible and load as quickly as possible. And actually, you know, you bring up a good point as well is that. Like it takes a lot of time, but one thing that I, I'll do as well is there's actually two things I want to bring up before I get into the, the next, next point that I was about to jump into before. And that is that 
I do this step last. There's certain things that I, I won't do. I'm not going to upload an 8K image in, in the design process, but maybe I'll upload a 1080p image or something like that, 720p, when it's something small and the page won't run all that well just because I'm trying to get everything set up. The reason why that is is because a lot of the time, especially if you're doing a client uh, thing or you're doing something in beta for yourself, you don't know what you're doing. So you don't know whether this is going to be the way it's going to be in the end. No one knows. The client doesn't isn't quite sure yet. You're showing it off to them. Maybe if it's your project, you're not sure yet. And that image might change a million times. And so to for you to spend the time making that image that's basically a tentative image, you don't know if it's going to be there later, performant is just really a waste of time. So a small productivity point there is I just do the performance stuff largely, not entirely, but largely at the end. Because now it's like, okay, this is what you want. This is the page you want. We want these images. We want this. We want that. Great. Now I'm going to spend a day, spend two days, whatever it takes. And I'm going to go in there and make everything performant, make the fonts load well, make the images load well, those type of things. The second point I also want to make up too, and I actually kind of want to ask Mike this because I, I don't do this, but I've heard of this. I don't know whether you should do this. And it's a question. So in that example I, may, I gave where it was a thousand by thousand pixels is the biggest it'll ever get. Obviously, as it shrinks, so as the page shrinks to be smaller than 1,000 by 1,000 in terms of its its size, because you're going down to a tablet or a smartphone or whatever it is, right? You're starting to shrink that screen size, shrink, shrink that screen real estate. What is... So I guess my question would be, I've heard that you should take various snapshots or versions of that image and load those individually. So you would have, this is the mobile version. This is this version. This is that version. So for example, WordPress, if you upload an image, it'll make things like here's the, here's the original. And then I don't remember the actual names, but it's like, here's the big, small, medium, original and thumbnail versions, which are used in specific contexts. But I'm talking about the same spot. So let's say it's in the slider. You load the big version, then you, then you shrink it down and then you load a, a smaller version, then you load it down. So it's actually different assets that just look the same. At the end of the day, it's the same It's the same picture, but the actual, there's like three or four different files there. Do you think that's, I, I don't do that. I don't think that's, I don't think I, I would do that. I don't, unless it's very something very specific and I can't even really think of an, an example of that off the top. And to my, to, in my opinion, that's just loading more assets, but maybe I'm totally wrong. What do you think? Yeah, so the assets don't get loaded if they're not displayed on the page. So if you if you have a breakpoint in CSS that uh, makes it so that the one of your larger assets is a display none and the smaller asset is display block, it won't load the display none asset. So that's why people do that. Right, but I guess what I'm asking is like, would you say, okay, let's take an image of uh, an image of an iPhone, so just a picture of an iPhone. And then you have the thousand by thousand and that you'll call that your desktop. And then you go into Photoshop, you shrink it down to what you would say is a tablet size. And then you just have like iPhone photo dash tablet. And then in your responsivity, would you ever replace that image? Yes. You would replace the image with the different versions or you would just force the browser to resize. You know what I'm trying no, to say? No, I would, I would replace the image with the different versions. That's what I was saying before is like you create a mo mobile version of for the image and you create a large version. I don't really care about tablets because it's not, it doesn't make up a big portion and uh, Google like page speed doesn't care about them either. So I, I would just have two versions. Honestly, if you're doing a custom site, like um, 
But yes, I, 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 I have done that recently where I literally have two different versions of the same image, one being cropped and cut up, cut up and one being large. Because what I usually do is I take I take the biggest image. So let's say this image is 4K and I realize that's widescreen, but just for the sake of example, we're not going to get into everything. Let's just say I, I, I cut it and I and I shrink it down to a thousand by thousand and it works like the, the all the content that you need to see in this image is 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 seeable. <laughs> you can see it. So I guess my question is then like or like what I do is I really, really compress it. I, you know, maybe I'll even try to, to make it a little smaller, like 900 by 900 to really squeeze it. So, it you know, it's a, it's not it's stretched because the aspect ratio is OK, but it's like it still looks good. I'll like run it through a different couple different compressions where I'll like try like really compressed, medium compressed, whatever. And I'll see how that looks. And then I get it to be just so. And then I and then the, to the point where like the savings between the two assets, big or small, would be nominal. And because computing power is good enough, even on, say, a, an older Chromebook, that it could resize the image. I just usually leave it. So what con like what situation are you doing the separate asset in the same spot in the slider, for example? So again, if, if it if it goes down from uh, you know eight hundred by eight hundred to four hundred by four hundred in a mobile version, then you're saving half the amount, regardless of your compression. It's still going to be half the file size, right, right? Right. On on each one. So almost in any situation, it's better to do that, uh, just to squeeze it down. Because again, when you do speed tests and when you're competing against different websites that have higher results, um. And like th- that kind of stuff will 100% matter. And, and, and you know, like the mobile speed test is di- more difficult than the, than the desktop speed test. So this is what helps you with the mobile speed test is, is serving different images on mobile. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So I, one thing I just, that just popped in my head when you said that is that when we test it or when I test it, I'm, I'm 90% of the time testing it on a desktop. And then I'm using a responsive mode, like in the dev tools, to shrink it down. And so my thought process is that, oh, well, like, you know, it'll, it'll shrink down and it's working just fine. I'm wondering whether that process is what's making me think. Because if you think about it, if you're on an iPhone, the iPhone can't get bigger. Correct. So it's only loading the one asset. So I'm thinking in terms of my environment. See, this is interesting. Okay, so I'm thinking in terms of my environment. Now, again, if it's a nominal change, in my case, it is. Like, I'm, you know, I'm scoring okay on mobile, uh, on sites that we've been paid to make performance and stuff like that. Like, it's not like I'm making a huge mistake and there's megabytes, you know, that we could shave off or anything. Um, but that's interesting because I, I think I think what I've, what I've done there and I've just identified it is I'm caught up in my own process of resizing. And I'm thinking, oh, that's fine because, you know, it, it goes big to small and it'll be fine. But, like, who's going big to small on an iPhone? Or who's going big to small on a tablet or any of the smaller devices? Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And that like hardly anyone ever resizes a browser window. Um, it happens, but it is a very rare occurrence. So you don't really have to account for it every single time. Like I know, like a, a lot of the times when I do responsive stuff, I'll resize like you know the the responsive window, and I'll notice that hey, at this specific random resolution, there's a problem. So like if someone were to resize their browser at this specific random resolution, but if you take a look at like regular sites, there are resolutions where there are problems, and that's because like 
you're solving for the 95% mm-hmm. or even the 98% where people aren't majiggering their, their window like crazy and their set sizes that they follow. So as long as you hit the major sizes like tablet, uh, phone, and desktop, and then high resolution, like maybe widescreen and high resolution screens like on MacBooks, because those are annoying, um, then you're, you're kind of good to go. But if you, if you worry about every single breakpoint that you could possibly worry about, it's going to take you like forever to build a perfectly responsive website. So it's, it, you know, you, you, you win some, you lose some. And that's why, yeah, you get, you get into your own head a little bit when you're a developer and you're janking the size around consistently. And just like your process, your thought process being like, Hey, if I have multiple images loading and I move this browser, all of a sudden I'm loading two images. Like it's not, that's not going to be the case in real life. Mm-hmm. The phone will only ever be one width, um, unless people turn, turn and look at your, you know, page landscape, which again, it's not an issue. That's the, at the end of the day, it, it will still perform really well. Even if you do the landscape thing and really what you're doing is you're playing the game of SEO, right? And the faster your page is, the faster your page speed is, the fast, the higher the number you can get, the easier it is to like explain to your clients what kind of job you did as well, right? So it's easy. It's like a, it's a multi-stage game of, hey, look at your score. It's above 90, right? Look at your client's or look at your competitor's score. They're in the 60s. So we're, this is how much better we are. It's a great way to kind of get like communicate that. Um, and the other thing is that it obviously still benefits your uh, it obviously still benefits your client, like the people that are actually using the site because it's just going to load slightly faster. But in the grand scheme of things, you're right. It's not a huge deal. Like the large image cut down because you've already compressed it. And especially if you already converted to WebP is not going to make a huge difference in, in like a, you know, someone on LTE or 4G or even maybe 3G. Like it's, they're not going to notice it like in real life settings that you've served two images. It's literally just to play that score. Another thing that's interesting too, when you're saying that as well, is the thing I was thinking about in terms of it being a little janky is that when I'm resizing it, I'm thinking, oh, I have to load, like you're saying, I have to load another asset. So in my resizing, I might see that bit of jank, but the the no that's one's a, see it. That, yeah. yeah, it's a rare occurrence in the actual UX of something. Yep. Interesting. Okay. All right. Uh maybe I'll I mean, maybe I'll do it. Like, I mean, I have good Google scores or whatever for anything I have done, uh, because they're compressed to crap, but uh maybe I'll maybe I'll try that out and maybe even boost the score. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. That's super interesting. Okay, good insight. Um, so there, there you go, folks. There's some real, real um, collaboration, real live collaboration, um, and that's why the Rolling Stone raves about our podcast. That's that's a joke, <laughs> by the way. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, now the next, the last part here about the slider is again pr- uh, just a preference thing. But you know, what slider do I use? Do I use a tool or a pre-built thing like I don't know, Owl Carousel or something like that, or do I make a custom one? Um, now this really does come down to context and I'll give you two contexts that I have had. If it's a website that has a lot of images that, uh, the person wants to be, you know, perfectly interactive and yada, yada, and all the rest of it, instead of me messing around with touch points and 
responsivity and iconography for the chevrons or the arrows that are on the sides and stuff like that. I will use something like Owl Carousel is the first thing that comes to mind. In WordPress, the most uh, convenient one I can think of is, I think it's literally just called Responsive Slider or something like that. Uh, I will just use that. And that's in most of the themes that I use if I do use a if I do have WordPress installed on a uh, or for a client, that's the most uh, common one. I think so. No, not responsive slider, revolution slider, I, I believe is what it's called. Excuse me. So those two, uh, we'll use one of those two. That's not necessarily an endorsement. That's just what I use. Um, the, there is another example, and that is that I had a client that wanted a slider, but with no interaction. It was supposed to have rotating uh, images, and the images were supposed to be uploaded by CMS and yada yada, and there wasn't supposed to be any interaction at all. It was supposed to be sort of like eye candy and background thing. So I just made, with my own CSS and JS, I just made in vanilla a little slider. It goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and that's it. Um, simple enough to use, you know, no problem there. Uh I guess they don't even use it. It's just simple enough to get it done. All I did was slide or uh, fade one image out and fade the next one in type of thing. So in this case, it really does depend on context. I will say that I've only ever really made a custom slider once and then maybe once in training myself or something. But for the most part, I would say using a tool makes a lot of sense because a slider, as simple as it sounds, has, I've already mentioned, Lots of like lots of iconography, such as the chevrons. It has maybe the little dots at the bottom that tell you, hey, you're on the third image of four. Uh, it has navigation on those dots. Maybe you can click on those dots. Maybe touch doesn't work on those dots for whatever reason. Maybe the person wants it so that the person can swipe with their finger when they're on a touch screen. Maybe they don't. Maybe they want them to tap on the chevron. Do they want to have like what type of timing? Do they do they need a timing control where they want the slides to go in and out a certain way uh, at a certain time? And in that saying that, what, what the transition and you know, what way does the slide change? Does it fade out? Does it slide out? Does it do this? Does it do that? So what, you know, when it comes to slider, it's a simple enough thing because so many websites have it and people have figured it out. It's just a matter of, it's not exactly the simplest thing on this, on the page. And so nine out of 10 times, you're going to use some sort of tool or plugin for your use. And, uh, you could do custom, but a, you know, why reinvent the wheel over and over again? Absolutely. I think, I think you kind of nailed it on the like library versus build yourself argument i guess the only other thing that i kind of sometimes consider is um i mean i mean you nailed it like the client's time is the most important one like if the client has the time booked in or if you have the time to create a custom component sometimes it is kind of relevant and some kind of, it is worth it to do it because a lot of learnings a component that you can reuse again in a future project something like a slider is on the one hand, simple, but on the other hand, can be very difficult, especially when you're talking about different screen sizes, different uh, user cases. Like if you need the slider to be able to be controlled by arrows or not, like there, there's so many different little things that a slider could have that could make it difficult that sometimes it's just like, you know what? I don't want to spend three weeks creating a slider, so I'm just going to use Owl Carousel. And that that's kind of like the case if we want to talk about it from a grand scheme of things for any, you know, library versus um library versus package. I will say that it's important to have that conversation internally with yourself or with your team at every stage. So if you're thinking about using a package, maybe just send out a Slack message or send out a Discord message or however you communicate with the team. Just be like, hey, I'm thinking about using this package and just just see what the response will be. Um, some some Most of the time you'll be asked to justify your use case because 
the more packages you add, the more dependencies you add to your project. And again, this goes for front end and back end. In fact, the more complex it can get to update to upkeep. And you can run into those situations where, hey, one of your dependencies of a dependency uh, has a security issue and all of a sudden your slider caused, you know, user information to leak. Like it's, it's a very unlikely thing. I'm not trying to scare you from using a slider because most likely it's not going to happen, but stuff like that has happened before. So it's just important again to have that conscious conversation. Like, do I need to do this? Like, can I build this in a reasonable amount of time on my own? Because again, that does alleviate the potential risks, the potential longevity of your code, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it is a give and take. It's something that you should consider. Yeah. All good points about the slider um, and something that we're all going to end up having uh, having to do at some point. Someone's going to want a slider. I know some people hate them. Some people love them. Some of them sometimes are just for eye candy. Sometimes they're more functional than whatever. But at some point or another, we're going to have to deal with sliders and uh, you know, good talking points and good things all around on the slider. The next part is rather simple here. The, des- the description section. And that is, of course, the section that houses the description. Uh, so this is going to be, in this particular website example, is going to be static text. So it's not going to be changeable by the CMS. And it's just going to be right in the HTML. So sounds really simple. But we have some talking points about this because just because this static text is just like a paragraph or a small blurb, it doesn't really matter. There is some stuff to be discussed here. So for example, should this be pulled from a database or written just in the HTML, like I said. And realistically, you have to ask yourself some questions. How often is this thing updated? And will this be put into the CMS at some point? If it's updated a lot, then maybe it's something where you're thinking, okay, you know, it would be good for the user to have control over this. Maybe the MVP or the first version of the site, the client says, hey, I don't need control over this description. But over time, as their, in this case, their podcast changes, they may have certain changes to that. They might have, hey, you know, we're going to have a a winter sale of merch. Maybe in the description box, I want to mention that. And we don't know when the sale is going to be, so I need to instantly change it. I don't want to have to contact the developer of the website to change this this little bit of text and have to wait maybe a week for the ticket to be processed type of thing. So if it's going to be updated all the time or on a a semi-urgent basis, like with the sale example, then maybe it will be put into the CMS. Now, there is now some people will say, well, maybe you should just write and, and and this is rare, but like it's a question that beginners might have. And that would be that, you know, maybe not even the CMS, maybe should we pull this text, not have it from in the CMS, so not, not that it's changeable, but should we have this string in a database somewhere and pull that string um, and into the into the, the page? I would say there's no reason for this. I would say it's just an extra step for something like that. Uh, like you could do it if you wanted to just train yourself to display text. But especially if it's one thing, it's kind of useless. If there was more uh, computing to be done here, if it was something like there's 10 descriptions, the descriptions are rather long and you want to randomize which one to pull, then maybe you can pull in a database there and you can still do that with just front end stuff, hiding and showing with CSS and that type of thing and maybe a little JS in there. But I would say it needs more computations around it to require a database or obviously needs to be in uh, an editable element in the CMS, which will almost always, if, if not always, use a database of some sort to track itself. Um, so that, that's my two cents on that. So, so just just to jump in here as well, I think in, another aspect of it maybe needing a database is internationalization. 
So if you're serving all of your text for English, Spanish, French, whatever, then maybe you want to have like a either internal, like either external or maybe even a local database that stores all of that in different variations so that when you build the site, it checks for your, you know, EN, ES, FR and serves the right text or something like that. So I could see that being maybe a case. Like you could do that all locally in a JSON file, which I have done many times before, but you could also do it in a local database or a server database. Um, I don't know if I'd recommend that. I, I think I kind of I kind of side with Matt on that. If it's not changeable, if it's not user editable, I would keep it local. So I would just do it like a JSON file and do all the logic in the front end. Um, but having said that, there is like I'm I currently right now in a project that I'm working on, I'm having this internal battle with myself. So there's a bunch of things like this, like descriptions and text and you know, landing page text and stuff like that. That's not part of the scope to be CMS'd. But I'm I am gonna be adding a CMS in the future to this project for like a blog section and stuff like that. And I'm thinking of maybe just CMSing it anyway. And this is because I think like Unless you have a constant service contract that you want to keep up with the person, with, with the client, right? So you have like a, a certain amount of money coming in every month that the client has already agreed to pay you for updating the site like this. If you don't have that, it's almost beneficial for you to just provide the CMS, you know, spend that extra couple minutes because of you, if it's already going to have one, right? Uh, hooking up the CMS to it. Because if the down the road, three months down the road, the client asks you to update it, it's a five-minute update. Yes, you can charge them for that, but that's kind of a weird thing to charge for, right? So it's just one of those things where you kind of have to balance like, do you want to be able to charge for stuff like this and have to like nickel and dime the client in the future, like if they don't have a service contract? Or do you want to just give it to the client and be like, okay, just you know, update the description in the CMS. You, know, you don't need to contact me for this little stuff. So that's the battle that I'm having internally right now. I think, again, I'm going to lean towards the CMS. And what, another thing that I want to point out, um, if you haven't listened to the, last, to the previous episode, is the CMS, when we talk about CMS, content management system, that's all back end, right? So the description static text would be fully front end. The CMS side of it is fully backend and how it would work is essentially on load of the site, whether it's server side rendered or client side rendered, it would access the backend API. The API would have some sort of a process in there to access the database, which stores the, the, the text and updates the text uh, and sends it over to the front end and the front end would dynamically place the text where it needs to go. Right. So it, it's this communication pipeline between the backend front end. So uh, to be able to get you the information. It's not as simple. There's a lot more moving parts. The hosting is a little bit more complicated. So when you're adding a CMS, you're adding backend complexity to your project immediately, right? So if you don't have a CMS, if you're in a situation where you're just building a static site, you have everything in writing that this is a static site that's not going to be updated frequently, or you have a service contract where you're updating yourself, at that point, maybe it's better to not even worry about the CMS because as soon as you go CMS, that's complexity that you're going to have to manage and it's it's not trivial to manage that yeah it's it, it's it's one of those it's one of those things where you have to consider um more than the technical side of things you have to consider the organizational side of things as well you know it, it sounds really simple like where it's like hey just bring in a cms or do this and do that and hey it's just some static text or hey it's just some dynamic text but when it comes down to this stuff you know the if you really think about it, the the static text 
in this example can really stand for anything that's static, static image, static heading, static this, static that, and whether it's actually going to be static and whether or not you want to be constantly in there changing things and whether or not the client needs to be in there changing things and that type of thing. So a lot of this stuff does come down to how the project is going to be used and how the project is going to be uh, you know, changed and edited and whether it's going to evolve. So it's going to be used this way today, but then in the future, text needs to change every day. So it's like, well, hey, you know, a CMS is an extra step and it's a little more management, but maybe we should put it in today. Or, hey, you know, this person, we've worked with them before and they always say their projects are going to blow up, but they just, they just don't, you know, just straight up, they just don't. And so, you know, maybe to save cost or this and that, we'll not put a CMS in today knowing full well that if this project does take off and if this project does do well, that we'll have to put a CMS in there for them. You know, it really does depend on the business relationship, the project, how the project is going to evolve, the plans for the project, et cetera, et cetera. So again, something as simple as static text and all this type of stuff really should have at least some consideration, not hours upon hours, but as much as consideration, let's say, as even Mike put, Mike and I just put in and even less than that in some, in some cases, especially if you're familiar with how a client works and how their projects turn out. Uh, the next part is the sort of biggest, uh, sort of the, the biggest part. Uh, and that is the podcast section. So. Like with the description, or unlike with the description, the description could be done in the front end with the whole static text thing in the HTML, or it could be done with some backend help with the CMS or with the database or that type of thing. With the podcast section, it's it has to be both in this particular case, and that is because it's going to contain episode content blocks, and those content blocks are going to have information populated, not from our server, not from our database, not from anywhere like that, from an RSS feed that's served to us by a podcast hosting service of some sort. So these episode content blocks are going to have certain pieces of information in there, such as the title, the episode number, the description, an image. So there's that remote image thing we mentioned, and a link to the file. Now, these podcasts, as I've already mentioned, but just to reiterate, are stored remotely on a hosting service somewhere, Podbean or whatever, right? And all the information is coming from that host via RSS. That's how most podcasts works. You go to a podcast host, you upload your files and stuff, so they handle all that stuff, whether they have to transcode or convert the uh, file or whatever. They put it up somewhere on a CDN or some sort of data store, and then they serve an RSS feed out for all of the different apps, such as Apple Podcasts, uh, Podbean has their own, et cetera, et cetera, Google Podcasts, you can have that RSS feed tap into that uh, that service, and that RSS feed has all the information that you've uploaded with some sort of CMS on the podcast host side. So I want to clear the, clear the air there and say that we're not going to talk about how the podcast host works. Just know that they have their own editing and blah, 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 and they're serving you an RSS feed. And you can take that RSS feed and get all this information from them. So we're not going to get into how all that podcast hosting stuff works. So, okay. The RSS feed that is used in this particular case is changeable by our CMS. So we're able to change the RSS feed that our CMS is using. So this podcast section is going to show these episodes in, in, in order here. Okay. So there's going to be a few talking points on this. So you probably already have a question of what parts are handled by the back end and what parts are handled by the front end, right? Well, the front end is for sure going to handle or almost almost definitely for sure going to handle the episode content blocks themselves, how they look, uh, how what, what colors they are, what fonts they have, all that type of stuff. That's what it's going to handle. 
they're gonna it's gonna handle all those little things. Like you're basically gonna generate like a like a virtually blank or like a templated single content block, and you're gonna say, okay, you know, this is how this this is how this lines up. This is how this wraps. This doesn't wrap. This does this. This has padding. This doesn't. This has margin. This doesn't. Etc. 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 Right. So there's that. Then the back end is going to handle the RSS feed. So the, the back end is going to, on the server somewhere, whether it be PHP or whatever, it's going to talk to the actual RSS feed. And it's going to do things like, uh, you know, actually interpret the RSS and maybe put it in a JSON endpoint for you so that you can just put in, put in your title and your episode number and that type of thing. It's going to basically serve your uh, front end via an API of its own making and say like, you know, you can put like episode dot title and episode dot number and episode dot description in your front end code. And then it'll, the back end will serve that stuff into the actual content blocks themselves, that type of thing. Um, now, one person might ask, and it's a good question, you know, could you do this all in the front end? Could I not use JavaScript? Because the RSS feed's public. There's no security really in this case. We're not logging into anything. The RSS feeds going all to all these services. So could you do this on all in the front end? Maybe you're probably, if not most definitely, going to hit a cores issue, a CORS. It's a cross origin, blah, blah, blah um, issue. Basically, it's because you're going to a different domain. Chances are because you're using a podcast hosting service. Uh, so you're not going to be able to do that. Um, I don't know if you have any, anything else to add with about cores, Mike, but basically, uh, if you try to do JavaScript across non-local assets, it'll usually throw a cores issue and there's ways around it. Like some APIs allow you to do it, but realistically speaking, almost always stuff like this will be handled by the back end. Yeah. I, I kind of, I, I don't have much to add on this except for the fact that I've run into cores so many times that I will try to avoid it like the plague. So even if let's say a random API allows cores, which happens like there are there are a handful out there with like even more than a handful that allow cores. I try to always have some sort of middleware that handles the API and sends me a local copy or like, you know, a, a, a version that I need for my actual website instead of having the whole shebang. That's another thing with the with APIs is a lot of the times they'll send you a lot of information that you don't need unless they're gra- GraphQL, which we won't get into too much. But a lot of APIs would just blurt out all the information and really your app only needs like three things. So a backend can help you sanitize that information down to exactly what you need and send you a much smaller package uh, that is perfectly designed for your application rather than the whole shebang. Again, there is a way around this with GraphQL, but um, that, that has to be supported by both the front end and the back end. It gets a little bit complicated. You have to write a, a reducer and stuff like that. It's, it, it's not easy. So regardless, I agree with Matt on this one. Uh, to avoid cores and to avoid oversending information is a more it's it's a better way to do it on the back end. Yeah, uh, it's just it's just a way. It's just basically like the the road of less resistance. The road of less resistance in in most cases. Uh, I have grabbed uh, and I like in one of my API. Like I was trying an API, I think for the first or second time or something, and pretty early. And I did find an API that allowed cores. So I was, you know, parsing JSON and blah, 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 all this stuff. Um, but like, it's just, it's, it, it wasn't the, it wasn't the cleanest thing in the world. And like, they're not going to hit cores. Uh, if you do use like a backend tech, uh, as far as I know, I don't do much backend stuff, but as far as I know, you're, ne- you're virtually never going to hit a cores, if not ever going to hit a so, cores issue. So, so you can, uh, and I, oh, you I can. Uh, yes, you can, but this is, this is what happens when you have like a headless CMS and a front end hosted on different ah, services. Okay. So a lot of the time you'll host your headless CMS might even have its own hosting platform 
that it uses. Like Sanity.io has its own host that hosts it. And you'll use like Netlify or Vercel or GitHub pages or your own, you know, PHP, Apache front-end server. Um, and in, in that case, of course, there's going to be a cores issue. But because you control the backend and the front-end, you can add in exemptions or you can add in the fact that, hey, this isn't a cores issue into like the header files of the backend server and the front-end and then everything works out. It's still something you have to consider. But it's something you can get around. Whereas if it's a cores issue between you and a third-party website that's not uh, under your control, you can't actually do anything about that, right? Like you can't go into their header files and add your website into there. Like it's not possible. Um, so you, there's nothing you can do. But with with your own backend and your own front end, it's something you can definitely work around. Fascinating. Well, that's some good insight because I did not know that. And that's a really good point, too, because as headless CMSs have kind of taken off the last couple of years, uh, something that some people are going to have to contend with more and more. So it's a good little uh, tidbit of information to know that. Um, Another thing to uh, consider when it comes to this is uh, how we process the information. So do we want to grab the info with with some backend code? Do we want to grab the info from the RSS feed and save it locally? So maybe in our own database or in our own file of some sort, and then occasionally update that maybe once a day, twice a day type of thing. So we only check the RSS feed once or twice a day. Or do we actually want the code to run every time someone goes on the site? Someone goes to the site, the code runs and it hits it. It hits the it hits the server. Um, maybe that's the way to do it. Um, that's the question. Honestly, it's honestly a big. It's like it. it it's a big context question again. So uh, sometimes, let's say your podcast host or the API that you're 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 going toward will say you can only hit us once a day. You can only hit us twice a day. So that means that two users can use it, right? So what you realistically have to do is you have to you don't and they'll usually tell you they'll say hey you know please. Go once a day, do one big pull on the very first on the very first one. Download our database effectively, or download our information, put it in your own database, and then update that database once a day with this command to like check if there were any updates, and then update your thing. And then on your site, you'll put up you know, hey, this is updated once a day at you know noon or whatever it is. And then that way, you the people know, hey, this isn't the freshest information, but they know when the information came from, and it was a day ago, and it's not a huge deal. That type of thing. Um, and yeah. also, it, it, you have to consider. Sorry, Mike, but and also have to consider the fact that because you are loading a page and you're trying to talk to a remote server, if that remote server is busy, if that remote server is slow, every single time someone hits the page, it's possible that loading that remote resource will be really slow. And it, it does depend on that remote resource. The remote resource might be equipped for that, but it might also not be. So again, it's really context based. Yeah, I don't have much to add to this because that that's all it is. It's just context based. The only thing is like the one con- the other consideration you can have is how accurate or how current do you want the information on your for your clients, right? Like so if they need the information to the to the second when they can access the site. Um maybe they have like maybe it's a stock website and they need like the to the second stock price, you know what I mean during during market hours. In that case, you can't really rely on a once, a one or two or a cron job grab on the back end where you grab a bunch of information, store it, and then serve that information to your client. Uh, you might have to do a per request grab, right? And, and, and although this might be, you know, you, it might increase your API costs and stuff like that. Sometimes it's a necessity to do that. Like, again, depending on your application, depending on the information you're getting. In other, in other example, like, uh, 
sports scores. If you want to create an application, an application where people can, you know, tune into games live and see the score changes in real time, you can't do that with a cached API. Like it's just not possible. You can't do that with a stored API. So you have to, what you have to do is you have to have this middleware on your backend that will query the API every time a client queries it, right? Or, or open up an RTC to some sort of API point or open up a WebSocket, uh, to, to an API point. Uh, so that though they can c- continually communicate even. So maybe they won't communicate with your server. They'll communicate with a third party. I don't know. But anyway, it's a consideration that you have to, that you have to think of where depending on, again, like Matt said, the context, it's a very, every time will be kind of a unique consideration, but it's definitely a, a front end, back end conversation as well. Um, in, in the grand scheme of things, because like how many times the backend has to access a third party backend, how many times the front end has to access the backend to get the information in real time. In this case, like in the case that we're talking about right now, where it's a podcast uh, application, I don't know, like maybe once a week, if it's weekly episodes, you could realistically have it check three times on the day that the episode comes out, if the episode does not always come out at the same time type of thing. Yeah, especially if you know, if it's like HTML, the things podcast, you know, when it comes out, have it check like 10 minutes after or something, 10 minutes after or a few times during that day. And that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. This could be very specific. Yeah. So this is, this is like one of those things, once again, where the back end and the front end have to work together and you, because you don't want to have a thousand people hit your site and then a thousand API calls go out. And that's just like hitting that remote server, unless it's equipped to do that, whatever. But, you know, you know, it, it, that's just wasted at that point, especially if the, the information is always the same. Because you got to remember, if someone has any trouble with the Internet and they refresh, that's another hit, another hit. And maybe they go to that page a bunch. That's another hit. And so it's just a problem in that way. Um, so it's something to consider there. Um, I would also – or another – I guess saving uh, – Another point, I suppose, that Mike wanted to make is going to be server versus uh, client-side rendering. But before we actually jump into that, I've got to write down this point. But I do want to bring out that one of the things here in this episode content block is an image. And so it's important to consider what image you are getting. So even though we already talked about image performance, you know, compress and resize and have different versions maybe and all the rest of the stuff that we have per context, something to consider is that this service is more than likely proprietary that you're calling from in this this podcast host. And so you, the user, might be told when you're uploading your episode to your podcast host, hey, I want a big image. I want a big 2000 by 2000 image. I want this. I want that. I want this. Great. That's fine. But the main problem might come in is that it might not in this RSS feed, it might not have a smaller version for the RSS feed. It might just give you the raw file. This could be purely you're uploading it and it's going into a data store that's associated with that episode and that's it. There's nothing in between. And so you might be serving an image that's inefficient. So you might need to do some stuff to the image. And that'll also play into whether you take the data and store it locally or not. It's sort of like the WordPress example, if you will, where when you upload something to the WordPress media folder by default, It'll make several versions of the same image. Like I said, large, medium, small. I don't remember the official names. And then thumbnail, I believe it is, right? Um, you could, if you store the data locally and these images are causing a serious problem, you could store all this information, the the link, the title, the description, all that stuff is all text for the most part, right? But that media file realistically could be resized or compressed with some backend code 
and maybe a library of some sort that does image processing to ensure that the image that is that is shown or served to the client, the website user, is the proper size, is is performant, it's not massive, because you have to remember these are episode content blocks, plural. They're not just a block. And so if every single one of these these episodes is giving out a two megabyte image, it's too much. And the reason why these services might do that is because they realize that it's it's hard or virtually impossible. I mean, other than, other than recently with AI technology, to take a really small image and really really blow it up and make it look super nice. Or at least I don't know how to do that. I'm not a massive image guy. I know the AI can really clean things up and resize it and sort of restore it. And maybe there's there were ways to do it. You know, experts can take a 30 by 30 image and make it 300 by 300 or something without it looking super blurry and such. Maybe that's the case. But the reason why these services might provide you with that raw image is because they're giving you the best and then you can chisel it away. It's sort of like with audio where short of it peaking, you want it to be loud so you can turn it down versus trying to amplify it, which will amplify any sort of background noise and that type of thing. So it's something to consider uh, here, especially especially if your API, your RSS feed or whatever you're trying to pull from has more than one image involved. It might be pulling a massive image, like a 10 megabyte image, and then you don't even know. That's also going to tax your network. So again, it's one of those things back in front and they have to work together and figure this sort of thing out. Now, Mike, you wanted to talk about uh, server versus client side rendering when it when it pertains to this podcast section in our example. So please take it away. Yeah, I think it's a really relevant conversation, uh, especially for this podcast section, because again, the what you're thinking of right now is for the front end, you want the site to be very SEO friendly. This is a podcast landing page site. So you want Google, Bing, uh, all the other search engines, DuckDuckGo, all the other search engines to be able to index it very quickly, very easily. And server-side rendering makes it a little bit easier to do that. What it means is that what what the client is receiving is, is a full HTML website with all the information that it needs to be uh, that it needs to serve to the client. So it essentially builds the site on the server. So it takes, a, it does all the, you know, API calls, all the stuff that we've been talking about, all the RSS stuff, builds all the HTML elements it needs and serves that website to the client, right? So the front end only sees a bunch of HTML structure. It doesn't actually need to do any of those API calls, not even to its own server. That's the difference here, right? Uh, and there's a big benefit there again, because you're not having any of this API calls, but when someone accesses it, including a crawler, which is what manages what determines SEO, it doesn't need to do any more external calls to receive all the information, wait for the information from the server, read all the information, and cache it or store it or you know do do whatever it needs to do with it to to show it or to to determine if it's the correct information. In this case, it would be you know blocks of different podcasts. So there would be a bunch of blocks on the page with a bunch of podcast episodes and information about those podcasts, including the title and stuff like that. So it's a kind of an important thing to have for the crawler to be able to see right away instead of having to wait for it to go to the server and back. Now, how it works on the client side, let's say you go with the client the client rendering approach, which is like a typical maybe Vue.js, React, Stack, or Svelte, um, just regular you know base framework stuff. Uh, it would build all that stuff after the the client loads. So as the when the client 
goes to that website, goes to the URL. It would re- go to the server, like it would have a response, a, a request response from the server, get all the information about all the different podcasts, and then it would go through and render that information out to that client. So when the client receive the first thing that the client receives is not a built out HTML structure, it receives a bunch of JavaScript code that then goes and builds that HTML structure for you, essentially. So there is a pretty big difference there, depending on what you're doing. If it's a web application that needs to be extremely dynamic, depending on the user, depending on user inputs, sometimes it's actually better to do more client side rendering, but you're giving up that, you know, immediate load that, uh, you know, you're giving up, you're, you're having to do extra API requests that might not need to be done, stuff like that. So you're, you're giving up a cent, a little bit of SEO friendliness and maybe a little bit of responsiveness as well, like in terms of, uh, how quickly the site loads, but you're, you're again, allowing it to be a lot more reactive and a lot more dynamic. So there is that, that, you know, push and pull again, it's a front, front end, back end thing. It's a little bit, this one's a little bit more complex from the front end and back end standpoint, because when you're building out the page, even when it's built out on the server, right? It's still kind of using a lot of the front end tech because, um, you're still building out HTML. You're still building out uh, CSS. That's all front end tech. The fact that it puts it all together on the server and re- and serves it as a, a full page doesn't change the fact that a lot of the limitations of the front end are still in place. Um, so there is some, some of that to it as well. So it, this is where you get, you kind of get that blurred line between front end and back end. That's a little bit more difficult to explain, but it's also important to understand when you want to use it and when you don't. If you're building a website, like a traditional website that you build on, a, you know, just HTML, CSS, that's uh, server side rendered. That's where the, the blurring happens, right? All that is server side rendered because essentially what you're receiving on the front end from your, you know, Apache server is the entire HTML structure and CSS pages of the site. That's server-side rendered. Where it is client-side rendered a lot of the times is, again, when you're going to like the regular React uh, view and Svelte stuff, that stuff does a lot of the processing on the client side and does a lot of more API calls that, than a, a, a traditional server-side render, rendered platform. Now, if you want to do, if you want to use like something like React with server-side rendering, that is very possible. There's another framework built on top of React called Next.js, and that allows you to do all the React magic, but still have a server-side rendered page that is sent fully complete to the front end. It's the same thing with Vue, with uh, Nuxt, and it's the same thing with Svelte with Felpkit. There's different tools that allow you to do this. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to kind of bring that up so you have at least a little bit of information on the benefits and the the blurred line between the front end and back end that client side rendering and server side rendering brings up. And it's good to sort of bring this up because it's one of those things like Webpack where the, the terms get thrown thrown around so much that it's just it it just becomes really confusing, especially to a beginner. And you know, even myself, I'll get messed up between them. It's just one of those it's just one of those things that gets thrown around so much. And like I still don't know what Webpack does. Like it's. <laughs> I forget like every other day I'll get reminded and then I'll forget again. It's just, it's thrown around uh, so often that I just sort of like, cause I don't use it. So I just, I haven't, I don't use it. So I just don't retain that information, but something to, something good to know, something to understand and uh, have a reference for. Absolutely. Uh, there is one thing I want to bring up and this is not about the podcast section. We actually missed this, but I'll do this before the next part. 
Uh, that is uh, fonts, actually. So there was a talking point in the description section, but it kind of goes anywhere because fonts go anywhere. And that is the the um, what would you say? I guess the the performance or the the efficiency of fonts. So you have a, it seems easy, right? So, you, you know, you, do you want to do you have the font files? Do you have the font family files? And do you want to put them uh, on your server somewhere? So are you going to serve the, that font locally? Is it going to be on a CDN like Google Fonts? Uh, you know, what is what's the uh, what's the deal with it blocking? Is it, are these fonts that you have blocking the uh, the page? from rendering, uh, you know, what's the performance of those things, et cetera, et cetera. And so like different fonts, uh, as far as I know, I don't know a ridiculous amount of, about fonts, but different fonts have different load times, probably based upon how they get rendered and that type of thing. Um, however, you, if you do a, a Google page speed, especially with many common CMSs, you will notice that you'll get dinged for, Hey, you know, these fonts are blocking like the loading of the page, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the exact error. Basically, uh, what's happening is as the page is loading, you are saying, don't, you know, show the user anything. Don't, don't run that page. Don't run that page. Don't, uh, like show that page until this font loads. And so that's where the font display property comes in. So a lot of people will do a font display, uh, swap is what it's called. So font dash display colon swap semicolon in, in CSS and that. That allow that takes away the blocking. It basically says, you know, just throw a font in there and then swap it once it loads. So maybe your browser will throw like an old school Times New Roman in there for a moment. And then that font that you actually want, like Roboto or something, will just like load in later. It'll just pop in. And you'll see that on websites where you'll be scrolling down a website that has lots of ads and lots of stuff and all this. And so the fonts are being held up probably by a bunch of other stuff. And all of a sudden, the font the font style, the font family just suddenly changes. That's usually due to that. Um, it basically gives an indefinite swap period and a very short, if basically zero, block period to the font that you're using um, or it, to the fonts in the, pro- in the uh, element that you are applying that CSS property to. But if you want the fonts to load even faster, you can take out a step. So you can also serve them locally. Now, I know there's been, uh, so many of you have probably seen it, there's been some legal problem with uh, Google Fonts uh, due to the GDPR and stuff like that. But you can serve fonts locally. So you, let's say you purchase a font from somewhere and it's no longer over the CDN. So let's just say, for example, you have uh, two, two of these description areas. The first one is using Google fonts in sort of the, what I would call the default configuration where the fonts are themselves are served from Google CDN. Obviously Google CDN is meant for this, right? It's meant to take multiple hits. It's meant to serve the font, uh, from a local or from a remote, you know, data store, or whatever, but you're adding a problem there. If you don't have font display swap on and you, and you have the fonts blocking the page load for however long it can, the network speed gets called into question. You have your server has to go and say, hey, you know, Google, give me this font. Google has to respond, yada, yada. I'm not going to get into how networks work, but basically it has to serve that and it has to serve it over the internet as well. And so you have this problem where this is being done. This is being done as another step. It's another way away. 
Whereas if you have your uh, font files, so they say they're WOF, W-O-F-F, I believe the thing is, or WOF2 uh, is the extension for them. And there's multiple other extensions as well. Um, but if you have those files installed locally, it's just going to be faster because there's effectively no network can, there's no there's no additional network thing. Remember that your user, your website user, your client is already doing a network thing. They're going to your website via the internet. So there there's let's just say there's like your one network thing. There's one your there's your one network step. Now you're if you have if you're using uh, something from a CDN like a font, you're use it's another network step. So you can cut that out and have it have the font served from the same server that the actual site is served from, which speeds it up. It's just a little local computation like, hey, I need this font size, whoop, and it just does it really quick. And so now the user has to, um, now the user's browser can can render that. It's basically, uh, it's basically nominal. It depends, really. Um, it can, so in my experience, if you have a lot of Google fonts and you're doing it from the CDN, it can delay for a while and you'll and you can notice things as well so for example uh i'll put font display swap on uh, and then i'll have five six seven google fonts installed let's just say let's just say it's a lot in this particular website you will notice that extra sort of network hop it's fast like i said like it's nominal in a way because google is meant to do it and especially if you only have one or two fonts it's you know it's nominal and as long as you're allowed to use it gdpr or whatever as long as you're allowed to use that remote cdn you know maybe you don't care about that but i have with websites that are font heavy i have shaved off say 5 10 whatever ish points on my google page speed insights by having font to play font display swap and then an additional five to ten shaved off by hosting those those font files locally so it's just something to consider it's like you just keep shaving off those steps as you make things more efficient and it becomes a question of between the front end and back end you know does the back end it depends on how you're getting your fonts i'm talking about google fonts it's probably the easiest way to get fonts but you know does the bat does uh, are you buying it from a service that offers a cdn you know do you want is there an api that allows so when the font's selected in your cms that the api so someone in the back end has to grab uh that font from the uh from the data store and store it locally or does it serve it every time over the network type of thing from the cdn etc cetera, etc cetera. so the reason why i bring this up and i thought it was important to bring up is that fonts are everywhere and fonts seem super simple but they can really hurt your google page speed i've gotten things from the red to the orange or the or the yellow whatever of the Google PageSpeed Insights, it's not a massive jump, right? It's not hundreds of megabytes or anything like that. But it's one of those things where, especially when left unkempt and you just have all these fonts being pulled from from different CDNs all over the place, uh, it really can slow things down, especially on slower connections. So it's it's something to consider. Uh, okay, so uh, did you have anything to add on that, Mike? I know that you wanted to mention that. Um, no, I think you nailed it. Okay, uh, moving on. <laughs> Simple enough. Moving on to uh, an email, the last part, which is our email sign-up form. Uh, so basically, this email sign-up form is going to be all about validation for the most part. So this email val- this email sign-up form is going to have three fields. It's going to have a first name, a last name, and an email. The first name field is going to be validated just so that it's not blank. We don't care what's in there. It just can't be blank. Last name, same thing. Last name field is going to be validated so that it is not blank. It's exactly the same thing. And the third one 
which is the email, is going to be validated sort of quote unquote properly, which is it's going to be validated such that it will be, it will, we will ensure it will have a valid email address typed in there. So uh, what we'll basically do is we will take the submitted information. This is in, in our example. We'll take the submitted information and we're going to store it in a local database. We're not going to send it out anywhere. We're just going to take it, take it and store it in a local database. So basically the use case is user comes in, types in their name, first name, last name, and then they're going to type in their email. We'll ensure that the name fields are not blank. The email field is actually an email address, a valid email address. And then we're going to, when the person presses submit, it will submit it via backend tech and it will throw it into our database local, just a random local database. doesn't matter. Okay. So, but the big thing we want to talk about, because we talk about this a lot in the first part, part one is validation methods. So you can validate a form via the front end. You can also validate a form via the back end. And there's pros and cons, I suppose, to each. But basically, validation done on the front end is validation that, you know, it's good, like it works and whatever. But if someone's tech savvy and for some reason wants to type something into your uh, your field that is not validated for whatever reason, then they can. They can right click, go to their dev tools, and they can manipulate the JS, which is what will what will most likely be uh, handling the validation. And then they can go in and they can enter a blank first name. They can enter a last front name, last whatever. They could even type in some, maybe some malicious code or something like that. So backend validation is kind of where it's at when it comes to validation. Frontend validation is fine. And like we've used it before and that's all great. But the thing with, with, with backend tech, as we've mentioned before, is that it's not right in front of the user. The user can't just go into their dev tools and go in and change the, the PHP, for example. The the actual backend code is running on the server, and so it will validate for you, and it will check, and the user can't go in there and say, oh, no, just allow a blank field, or hey, you know what, just put ASDF as my email, it's fine, I don't need like an at whatever.com or whatever it is. So if you really want your data to be validated, if you really want the data to be a specific way, and and you you care about it being validated consistently and properly, especially over thousands of users potentially hitting this website, then generally you will do a backend validation. If it's something where it's just sort of fast and loose and it doesn't really matter and you're not concerned about people typing in malicious code into there or something like that into your input field, you're not worried about that, local validation um, or front-end validation might be uh, better for you, might be easy enough, but in almost all cases, for the most part, backend validation is more or less where it's at yeah i think i think another consideration here is like we're talking an email sign up form most likely that means you're probably going to receive an email so you're going to have to send an email as well and that's another aspect where like you have to have a backend for that everything about sending an email has to be on the back end the other part of this is, is if it's an email sign up form it probably has some sort of consent marker there so this is where i kind of the next talking point here, I think, is going to be about like databases and local databases versus somewhere else. Um, if by local database, I'm not 100% sure what you mean by local database, Matt. So I wanted to clarify that aspect before jumping in. So essentially, when you're storing information on the back end, are you talking about a local database on the back end, like an SQL server? Or are you talking about a local database as in like local to the client? 
No, lo- yeah. So I, I should clarify that. So when I say local database, I'm, I'm, and maybe it's the wrong way to, to, to put it. I'm thinking like in your standard shared hosting cPanel setup that most people uh, listening to this will more than likely use. Um, they'll have like a MySQL uh, interface there, and and it might be on a different server, it might be on like the host database server, or whatever. But what I'm basically trying to get at is that it's at your host. It's not like at your podcast. Uh, it's not like at your podcast provider's host or anything like that gotcha um okay so so then in in that case it's fine like as long as you're storing like it's a back-end connected database then for sure it's all good um like essentially you need to keep a keep a track of all the people that are signed up and you need to keep track of their consent now you can use the the factor of like hey if they signed up they they gave consent uh, as long as you have the checkbox in there, but I would still keep like a separate attribute there for, as consent because if you get audited down the line, you need to kind of prove that you have this information with consent. So that's that's something that you can do. So make sure that you keep that information. Make sure you keep your users in a, in in a database. Um, whether it needs to be encrypted or not depend depends on what kind of information you're storing. If it's names and emails, I would still probably encrypt that in some way, shape, or form because that's inf- valuable information. Like email lists are valuable information, especially when they're targeted email lists. So they could be targeted. So again, that's another aspect, security. And anytime you mention security, again, I just wanted to point out, Matt's already pointed it out, backend is where you secure everything. Why validation needs to be on the backend is because you cannot, almost in any case, secure a front end communication that's a big problem right like you can't you can't do anything that a a, a very mind like you can't have it so that someone can't view your front-end code let's just put it that way if it's in the front end it's viewable and editable and manipulatable by a malicious actor so you need to have any sort of validation any sort of sanitization that's another thing i wanted to mention sanitization of data so for instance you have an email address that goes into your back end or and you have a password that goes into your backend. How some of these malicious actors go is that in the email address they'll add a you know a um, SQL query, so that when you put it into the when you when you start storing the email, it'll actually run a query and like delete all your files or something like that, or delete it or or send it to the send it to another person or do something malicious to it, whatever. So you need to not only sanitize for a correct email, but you need to sanitize for making sure that there's no SQL commands in your email as well. And that should all 100% of the time be done on the back end. Although in one case, I think you need to have both or not in one case, in most cases, you need to have kind of both because, for instance, seeing if it's in 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 a format that is an email is very easily done on the front end as well. So there there's an email input type. And there's email, there's actual like built into HTML itself, email validation. So you can use that. It doesn't take any time to set up. You can just literally Google email validation in the HTML and it'll actually do all that validation for you on the front end. Can it be bypassed? 100%. Easily bypassed. So that's why you have to do both. But at least it provides a really quick response to a user that maybe mistypes and forgets an at or forgets a .com or whatever and will alleviate some of the early problems down the pipeline, right? Without having to send the email to the backend, the backend validates and then sends back an error response. That could take some time. So you want to catch as much of the information on the front end as you can for the people that aren't malicious and you want to back up yourself against the people that are malicious in the backend uh, as well. So just kind of use both. 
Yeah, perfect. And uh, good catch on the local database thing. I, it's definitely like more of a, a show note than like a, a concrete, <laughs> a concrete term on that. So uh, good catch. Good catch on that as well. Um, I think that concludes the this part. So we're going to talk about the CMS next. So unless you have any other points to add, Mike, I think I'll jump into the sort of last part. And the reason why this is sort of separated is because this is almost purely uh, back end related. Which no, is the let's CMS. Go. Let's talk right. about CMS. All right. So uh, obviously the CMS does have a front end. It has a GUI that you use. You log in and stuff like that. We're not ignoring that. But the CMS, of course, is really interacting with the back end and interacting with the database such that it will affect the website that the user sees. So in this particular case, just for simplicity over a podcast, I'm not going to talk about 15,000 input buttons and, you know, page builders and all the rest of it. I'm this, this CMS is literally you log in with an authentication system of some sort. You're an admin, you log in and you, you only control the RSS link. It, there's literally one input box and one save button. You change that, that RSS feed link, you press save and that's it. Just, just for the simplicity, simplicity of on a podcast type of thing. So again, authentication system. You log into an area, there's an input box, you change that, you press save, that's it. Okay, so some talking points about that. So, an authentication system. So, Mike's already talked about, you know, securing things on the front end and back end, but you really don't want to do an authentication system on the front end. The reason being is, at least for the most part, unless you want to, like, somehow hide it, and you can't really hide it too effectively, if, if, if at all, you're literally going to have a, a, an if in there somewhere. It's going to be like, if password... <laughs> equals like hello and that's your password is just the word hello if password equals to hello then let the person in i mean the person's going to be able to go in there and change that password variable number one and number two they can see it so you're not going to want to do that now we've done this for a client just for like a like a temporary gatekeeping thing where it was like hey do this real quick for me type of thing but this isn't for security it's just for purely gatekeeping for logistics purposes fine ish but still like this is not like don't be don't be putting your password in your js um i'm laughing because i put my my password my email and my api key and then pushed it to github in my js once when i was learning something so um and i'm sure i'll do it again because i'm a fool sometimes so just uh, an fyi don't do that and authentication needs to be back end for this exact reason so there needs to be some some place where the password is checked with some sort of if, you know, if the password's this, then cool, let them in type of thing. Um, that needs to be secured code. You can't be having that logic put where somebody can change it, where they could just say, hey, make the password blank and then it'll let me in. They could do that if it was just all JS stuff. So authentication needs to be backend. It needs to secure those pages. In this case, it needs to control. It needs to secure the page that controls that RSS link that has that input box and the save button. It needs to secure that in order to prevent the user from being able to change it. But also because passwords themselves are secure information, and you don't want people to to mess around with that. Um, uh, did you have anything to add to that, Mike? Before I like move on, because I know you. I I thought maybe you'd have something to add about the back end tech or anything like that. All right. Yeah. I mean, I just want to kind of cover. A, a really simple, straightforward authentication process, just so you know what the front end does and what the back end does. Now, this is, I'm going to preface this, that this is very simplistic. Um, I don't want to get too in, too in depth in here because this is a podcast and it's a little bit, it's not the right medium to explain the authentication process, but I do want to give a quick overview. So essentially a client would, or a user would come in, put their email and password into the site, into the login page, and it would be sent over uh, they would they would click login. 
the information, the email and password would be sent over to the backend using SSL. Now, why I say SSL is really important here and is an absolute must and necessity because whatever you're sending at this point is going to be unencrypted in terms of the email and password. It's just going to be regular plain text. If you don't use SSL, someone can use a man-in-the-middle attack and essentially grab the packet that you're sending, deconstruct it, and see the exact email and password that you're sending. But with SSL, that information will be fully encrypted end-to-end. So even if someone were to do a man-in-the-middle attack, they would have to decrypt it, which they can't, or the technology doesn't exist right now to decrypt it. So your email and password, even if it's in plain text, is safe. Now, once it gets to the server, it's the server is going to check with the database and then send back a response to the client, depending on if the information is correct. So obviously, the client doesn't know that. It has to rely on the server. The server, the back end, is going to determine that information and then send back a, you know, login success uh, response. With that, with the cl- the client can then receive that login success response and do whatever it needs to do. Usually it would be redirect to a certain page, store the credentials because not only does the client, uh, does the server respond with the uh, success response, it actually responds with a token. And that token is really, really important. The token is what you're going to be using to making all, to make all the, all the uh, API calls to your server to make sure that the server and client are both authenticated. Right. So when you make a request to the server with your token, it's called usually called a bearer token. You're going to send that information to the server. The server is going to take that bearer token information, decrypt it or check, check what it is, check, make sure that it, it falls into the category of authenticated on the server side and then do whatever you needed to do. So if the response, if the request was uh, change RSS feed, as long as your bearer token, which you got from the authentication is correct, you can, it'll allow you to do that and send back a success response. If your bearer token was expired or your bearer token is incorrect or is blank, it's going to give you again an authentication error and you're going to have to handle that on the front end somehow. So this is the way that the client and servers kind of communicate with each other. Uh, especially when they're kind of two separate entities a lot of the time. And even when they're the same entity, this is the safe way to do it because if you don't have this kind of bearer token thing, then someone could try to directly access your backend. And if they directly access the right API point, even if you don't expose it, they would have full access to whatever you they need to do. So without that token, uh, it's important to kind of note that you need to make sure that your backend is secured by some sort of a tokenized system. This sounds like every mistake... I would make the first time through. It would be like, ah, I just went in through here and I don't know what this token thing is and just like ripping things out and then just like, well, that's all messed up. That's good. Yep. I made that mistake a billion times. So, I mean, it's also a point with saying that, you know, we're just joking around at this point, but, you know, it is something to uh, consider that people do make mistakes in this regard and double checking stuff. (laughs) you know, is, is, is crucial, especially when it comes to systems that need to be secured. But I think that basically concludes this episode. This episode is not as in depth. At least I don't think it's as in depth as the previous episode. This is sort of applying your knowledge. And of course, the context uh, really does change a lot of different uh, things. It really, it really is related to the project and the services you're using and those type of things. But I hope that this is a, you know, a clear 
hopefully a clear way for you to see like, hey, this is where the front end works and this is where the back end doesn't and this is where the back end and the front end might start going. And, you know, I can't just do everything in JS here because I want this validation to be secured and and, and that type of thing. So hopefully we went through it uh, clear clear enough. I was going to originally do this episode such that I was going to write CMS, you know, what's front end, what's back end and be very, very direct. But because the line, as we've discussed in part one, has been blurred between front end and back end, and especially in a working environment has been blurred and some tasks can be back end, some tests should be back end, some tests should be front end, et cetera, et cetera. Because there's that blur I just kind of thought that having more conversational would be a little better, and I hope that it, it serves its purpose. Um, and you and it it, it was direct enough that uh, we made it clear enough for you. But it is it is time to end this episode. So many thanks to our three dollar tier patrons. Before we do so, we are on Patreon.com if you want to become one of these people. That is Patreon.com/slash/html. All the things. And our $3 tier patrons, Sean from RabbitWorks JavaScript on YouTube.com slash RabbitWorks JavaScript, Garrett from Local Path Computing and Web Design on LocalPathComputing.com, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on BlueBlackDigital.com, Chris from Selfmade Web Designer on SelfmadeWebDesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on TheWebHacker.com, DL Ford from DLFord.io, Bip Hashash from 9 Block Media on 9BlockMedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via GeekLifeRadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via MCWebStudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via YesWeb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Rithic and a new one here. I think this might be the second time they've been featured. Uh, Edubloxians. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. Game designed for kids via edubloxians.com. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.